This morning we turn in God's word to Ezekiel chapter 43. We in this Advent season, means the coming, think of the coming of Jesus. That's Christmas we call when the Son of God came to earth in human form, but we also look to Christ's return now, the same Lord Jesus, to come from heaven. And we often think about these things at this time of the year. We've been doing for a sermon Advent series the, the coming glory. Glory of God is the, the radiance of his being. It's the physical manifestation of his presence. And that presence of God that we lost through sin came to the tabernacle in the wilderness, that tent that God had Israel build, and it filled that tent. And then as God's brought his people into the land of Canaan, God had a temple built, a house for his name, and his glory came and filled that house. And then last Sunday night we saw in Ezekiel 8 through 11 the vision that Ezekiel had. Ezekiel was a a prophet and priest, but he was one who was carried away captive by the Babylonians before the temple was destroyed. But Ezekiel had a vision in which he was transported to Jerusalem, and he saw in the vision the glory of God rise up and leave the temple. Leave the temple. But now in Ezekiel 40 through 48, he has another vision. And now the glory of God returns to the temple. So in between last time and this time, the literal temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Babylonians had taken some people captive back in Ezekiel's uh, deportation, leading citizens of Jerusalem, the king and his family. Some people were deported. Daniel also, remember? And... uh, But now, as they've been living in captivity in Babylon, there's been rebellion in Jerusalem, and the Babylonians have destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. But now, Ezekiel has another vision. And so, in the chapters here before chapter 43, in chapters 40 through 42, Ezekiel has surveyed this temple and this city that God uh, speaks of, has all these precise measurements and, and rooms and entrances and exits and all that, if you recall. And then we come to Ezekiel 43 in the midst of this vision And we hear God's word. Ezekiel 43, verse 1. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city, The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me, And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. 
Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, Make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sights that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar in cubits. The cubit is one cubit and a handbreadth. The base one cubit high and one cubit wide with a rim all around its edge on one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits. And the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high with four horns extending upwards from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, squared its four corners. The ledge 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim of a half a cubit around it. Its base one cubit all around and its steps face toward the east. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. You should give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with a bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priest shall throw salt on them, and they will offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day, for seven days, you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day, and thereafter, that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord God. God's holy word. Let's bow before him and ask for his help. Father in heaven, a glorious revelation you've given to your church throughout the ages and how we need your Holy Spirit to understand it, to believe it, and to live in the light of it. We pray, Heavenly Father, you, the God of great glory who comes to your people, would you come to us even on this Lord's Day? Would your glory come to us by the Spirit of Christ, your radiating presence to bring light and life comfort and joy and direction and help. 
Oh God, come to us by your word, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to acknowledge this morning that this world has a hole in it, has a hole. And we feel that everywhere, that kind of emptiness. And there's no amount of, of optimism that can, that can overcome this. When last time Ezekiel had this vision of the glory of God departing, it departed. Sometimes people say, you know, are you the kind of person glasses is half full or half empty, right? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Is the glass half, half full of water or is it half empty of water? But you see, when you look at that temple and the glory of God departing, it's not a question, you know, is, is the temple, you know, half something or half nothing? Is God half there or half not there? God is God. God abandoned his temple. And that temple was the dwelling place of God with his people. It's not that God needed a temple to dwell in. The highest heavens can't contain him. The temple was the emblem of God with man. And the glory departed. Empty. This world has a hole in it. Our lives have holes in them. God created a world to be full, didn't he? When you think of of the creation account in Genesis 1, maybe you've noted before that the first three days of creation, God creates realms creates the heavens, he creates the atmosphere, he creates the sky, he creates the ocean, he creates dry land. And then the, the second three days of creation, days four, five, and six, he fills these spaces. He sets the, the sun and moon to, to govern the heavens. And he, he puts birds in the air and fish in the sea. And on the sixth day, he, he puts upon the land mass, he puts animals and his image bearers. God fills it up, but ultimately he fills it with himself. He walks and talks with Adam and Eve. His glory is the fullness of, of creation. And we live in a world of the whole in it. There's emptiness and there's sorrow and there's sadness. Each time we see someone pack up their house and shove everything in the U-Haul and drive away out of our life, there's sadness. It's emptiness. Or maybe you drive past an old dairy farm. Maybe it was your own. And there used to be cows and workers and production there. And now it's, it's empty. It's abandoned. You have emptiness. Maybe you see pictures of, of loved ones who've, who've left, who've been called away, called home. And you, you sense that emptiness. The world is an empty place in so many ways, isn't it? Many who have lost their marriages, they go home at night to an empty house. Everybody is ultimately emptied out, you could say, right? You go to a funeral home and there lies a body, but, but it's empty. The, the soul, the life is not there anymore. Your stomach sinks, right? And there's sorrow. The life of the unbeliever in this world is empty. And therefore, some take their own lives because, because they've wanted to believe that there is no God. They in their minds have emptied the universe of God. There is no God. All this that we see and every thought I have, it's all just chemical reactions. It's all meaningless. So I live anymore. But this morning, God comes to us as glorious news. 
glorious news that God in Christ Jesus comes to his people and he fills their lives with his presence. In these previous chapters, Ezekiel has been surveying very carefully the temple, measuring it all up, up and down, examining the the doorways and the entrances and the rooms, but it's still just a building. It's empty. But now in chapter 43, the glory of the Lord fills the house. This is the gospel. Let's look at this, how the glory of the covenant Lord returns to his temple. We consider, first of all, the, the promise of the temple, and secondly, the law of the temple, and thirdly, the altar of the temple. The promise of the temple is spoken in verse 7. And the Lord there now in the inner sanctuary says to Ezekiel, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And then again in verse 9 at the end, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Isn't that astounding? That the living God is saying that he, he comes to his church to, to make his dwelling, to live with his people forever. He's never going to depart them, never going to leave them. That he, the holy God, will dwell with man. It's amazing. But there's no way, of course, to appreciate that without remembering what has happened here. Remembering what has happened. If I take you back even further, you might remember that incident with Eli. When Eli's sons, who, like their father, were also priests, they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines as if to drag God by a leash into battle and to force him to bless them. And Eli, the old man, is waiting and waiting to see what's going to be the outcome. And a messenger comes running and tells him, your sons are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. The very throne of God, as it were. And Eli falls over backwards and breaks his neck and dies. And then his daughter-in-law goes into labor, delivers her son. And as she dies, she gasps out one word, Ichabod. Remember, Kabod or Kabod is is the word glory. And the word glory means weightiness, heaviness, substance. God's glory is his weightiness. And she gasps out, Ichabod, no glory. The glory has departed. It was a sad day in the life of Israel. But Ezekiel saw it even Saturday when the glory had departed the temple. And Ezekiel watched that across those chapters 8 through 11. That this glory of God lifts up. And, and it departs slowly. It, it pauses over the threshold of the temple. It, it moves hesitatingly. God doesn't want to leave his people, doesn't want to abandon his glory. But, but his people drive him out by their wickedness. And God's glory goes out the east gate. Out the east gate. And the question is, would God's glory ever, ever return? Would you return? If you were God, years ago I was sitting in an apartment with a, a widow in the nursing home and she points to the door and she says, every time that door opens, I think my husband's going to walk through it. Give me a, an appreciation as a young minister for the, the marriage bond and the, the strength of it. 
that having lived so long with her husband, now though he's been dead for years, when the door opens, she expects to see his face. But could God's people expect that? That if the door would open, there would stand God, the one we drove out of his house after all the mercies he had shown us? And yet this is what happens. Notice how the Spirit writes it here. Ezekiel 43, verse 1, Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. Verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. What's all this east talk? Well, God's glory departed out the east gate, and now it comes back to the very same gate. It's a complete reversal of the circumstance. And Ezekiel makes clear it's the same God. It's the same glory I had in the previous vision, he says. It's, it's the same God. It's the majestic God whose voice is like the roar of many waters, and I fell on my face. This is God, the living God, returning to his people. Awesome glory. In verse 5, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Again, the tabernacle had been filled with glory. They couldn't even enter it. The temple was filled with glory. The priest couldn't go in there to minister. And now this temple that Ezekiel's seen is filled with glory. And God says, I will live here. What does all this mean? Well, it means God's a gracious God, right? Though he chastises his people and though he... He departs them for a season. God returns in all of his covenant fidelity, and he will be a God to his people. He will be present with them, and he will show them his mercies. And though he departed the temple haltingly and hesitatingly and slowly, he returns to the temple rapidly and directly. God comes. And it's not that that the people of God have done this. It's not that Ezekiel has cried out for God to come. It's not that we have pulled God down from heaven, but, but he comes willingly. He comes of his own accord. He comes sovereignly. It's marvelous. And all of creation, we read, shines with his glory. What is all this about? This is the, the difficult question. It comes to interpreting the prophet Ezekiel. Of what is he speaking? When will this occur? And there are those who who believe this is to be fulfilled literally. Some believe that Ezekiel was thinking that that this is the temple that was going to be built after God brought his people back from the Babylonian captivity, that they would build this temple. But the problem is that when they come back from captivity, they don't build this temple. They apparently don't even try to build this temple. And in fact, nowhere in the prophecy, I don't think, does God tell them to build this temple. And it would seem that you'd have to accuse the Holy Spirit of being quite mistaken because this is not the temple that they built. Others have said this will literally be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. In a dispensational theology that's quite prevalent in America believes that when believers are raptured up to heaven, as they say, and Christ comes to establish a millennial, a thousand-year reign on earth, that this temple will literally be built. But of course, the great problem is that we just read about blood sacrifice. And, and how will blood sacrifice be performed 
in Jerusalem in a temple. Would that not undermine the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood shedding was the final, complete sacrifice? Well, the, the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the great disseminator of dispensationalism, has had, as I understand, quite an effect and uh, led to many people embracing dispensational theology. The Schofield Bible had an answer to that objection, and it said these offerings would be memorial looking back to the cross. They wouldn't be propitiatory sacrifice, but memorial, remembering sacrifice, remembering what Christ did. But then the new Schofield reference Bible conceded that the language of sacrifice is not to be taken literally. The New Schofield Reference Bible says the reference to sacrifices is not to be taken literally in view of the putting away of such offerings, but it's rather to be regarded as a presentation of the worship of redeemed Israel in her own land in the millennial temple using terms with which the Jews were familiar in Ezekiel's day. Now that's a remarkable concession. That's, that's quite an admission because the the hermeneutical principle, the, the principle of interpreting the Bible that is, that is at the foundation of dispensationalism says that all the prophecies must be fulfilled literally, literally. And so the promises God made to Abraham and to David have to be fulfilled literally. So they must take place in Jerusalem. There must be a temple built. The Jews must have such and such. But now if the new Schofield Reference Bible has said these sacrifices are not to be taken literally, well then why does the temple have to be taken literally? See? This is not to be taken literally. This is prophetic literature. And the nature of prophetic literature is that God speaks and figures that become more clear when you turn to the New Testament and it interprets them for us. And God often uses images that were in some way maybe familiar to the people of that day because they can't begin to imagine what the future looks like. God condescends to speak to us in, in terms that we might recognize about a future that we have no idea how to conceive of. What's being spoken of here is ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. The glorious creation where God will dwell with man and his glory will fill it. What's being spoken of here is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the temple of God. What's being spoken of here is the church of Jesus Christ. And so we have these things now in part, but this looks ahead ultimately to that day of Christ's return and a new creation. The church of Christ has been told now has seen Jesus John 1 verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth the glory of God has come to us in Jesus Christ Hebrews 1 says that this son is the brightness of God's glory the the express image of his person God's glory has appeared to us in Jesus Christ. And the church of the New Testament is described as, as a temple, right? Peter says, you are living stones being built up a spiritual house. Ezekiel sees in this vision the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of the coming one. And Ezekiel 
is proclaiming this comfort that to lives that are empty, there is hope in the coming of the mediator. Only those who, who know Jesus Christ, the glory of God, find anything that satisfies the whole in the life. Remember Saul, the persecutor? He thought he, he had a life that was pretty well put together. Got no holes. I'm a Pharisee. I'm zealous. I'm persecuting these Christians. But then he met the glory on the road to Damascus, the bright shining light. And he learned to count everything he had as a dung pile. It was all empty. But Christ, his righteousness, was his life. Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 4, For it is, it is, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That a, a beautiful phrase, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he says a few verses earlier, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So you see, the life without the glory of Christ is an empty life. The congregation that lacks the glory of God is an empty congregation. But the glory of God is not something that you and I can capture. It's not something we can pull down. It's not something that we can demand of God. The glory of God, his radiating presence, comes to his people freely. And that's the wonder Ezekiel sees through the same way God exited, the living God returns to his people. We did nothing. We didn't deserve this. But what a God he is. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That to the unsuspecting, the glory of God appears. To this young virgin Mary, the glory of God's going to fill your womb. To shepherds out in the field just taking care of sheep, the glory of God from heaven. To Anne and Simeon, waiting in the temple and awaiting these aged saints, the glory appears. We can't pull God down, but God comes in Christ. And his glory comes to anyone who will humble their heart and believe the message and receive him. And if we believe in Christ, then we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And though we still ache and we sorrow, we have learned the principle and meaning of life. We have met the living God. And we have fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And we have a future. A future. The best way to interpret Ezekiel is to go to the end of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. They take up all of this or much of what's found here. And they, they, those chapters reveal that it's about the final restoration. The new creation. Revelation 21, that I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Again, not to pick on the dispensationalists too much, but, you know, Ezekiel goes on in chapter 47 talking about this river that flows from the temple. 
And we know that ordinarily in God's creation, rivers don't flow on the tops of mountains. Streams begin at the top of mountains. But in the book of Revelation, in that new temple city God builds, from the throne of God flows the river of healing waters. These are pictures God is giving. Christ is that living water. And when God comes to a broken world and to a broken people with his glory, then he fills it. And when God comes in Jesus Christ, it's not the question half full or half empty. Lives that have been empty, empty, empty are now full, full, full. The living God lives among you in Jesus Christ. All life, all joy, all peace, all satisfaction we enjoy in part today. And when Christ comes again, we will have fully the glory of God. That's the promise of the temple. I'll move more briefly now. The law of the temple, secondly. The law of the temple is found in verse 12. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Now, God had often told his people, boys and girls, do you remember this in the Old Testament? Boys and girls, maybe you remember this language. God said two important phrases. He said, said, number one, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the covenant relationship. I will be your God, you'll be my people. But then God also said that in this covenant, this is the condition. You shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, how will God be God to a people if a people won't be holy to God? Terrible thing God's people did to him. Ezekiel saw it in vision as we saw last time. Remember God He had a tour of the temple last time in Ezekiel 8 through 11. And God brought him in to to the temple precinct. And there there were idols to false gods set up in God's temple. And there were elders who were bowing down in false worship. And there were ladies who were weeping and crying in false worship. And there were people looking to the east to the sun and worshiping it at God's temple. It was an abomination. What does it mean that God's holy? Holy means set apart. Holy means set apart. God is holy in that he is God and not creation. He's the creator and not creation. He's set apart that way. He's also set apart from sin. He's different. He's special. He's unique. He's not of the same class as we are. And to regard God as holy is to recognize that God's not just one of us and God can't tolerate sin. But God's people disregarded his holiness and they treated God as common. They treated God casually. They dealt with him in a flippant way. They said, you know, you got this temple, but we're going to put gods of of other nations in your temple because you're not so special. All these gods are special. And they treated God as if he's nothing more than the gods of the nations. And they defiled God's name and they profaned God's temple Despite the fact that they were of, of all people on earth, Israel, the Old Testament church, was the one people who had the revelation of God, the one people who had the covenant God made with them, the one people who held the promise of the coming Christ. And yet they did this to God. So what does God do? Well, God says, if you won't treat my glory as glorious, if you won't treat my weightiness as being weighty, then I will 
and I will protect my honor. And so God departs. God defends his own glory. If you treat God like a candy wrapper blowing down the sidewalk, then you haven't appreciated his weightiness. God is pure gold. But if you treat me like a candy wrapper, God says, then I cannot live with you. We don't always recognize how important holiness is, but Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So the question then is, how is God going to return to these people to live with them? Does God adjust himself to them? Maybe a guy quits his job. He says to the boss, I'm out of here because I don't, I don't get any respect. I don't get the promotion I deserve. I don't get the pay I deserve. I don't get the praise I deserve. I'm gone. And a couple months later, he can't find a job, and he comes crawling back to the boss, and he says, all right, I can live with this. I can live with this. Take me back. Is that, is that what the living God does? Comes crawling through the east gate. Oh, people, please. I need some worshipers, won't you, please? I stand at the door of your heart and I knock and I plead, won't you take me in? No. No, absolutely not. God cannot change. God cannot disregard his holiness. If God did, God would not be God. So if God hasn't changed, then what's changed? And the answer is, the people must change. You see, verse 7a, I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, is followed by verse 7b, no more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. And verse 9, now let them put away their harlotry. God will cleanse the hearts of his people. How will God do that? Well, ultimately, God does it through Christ and by his powerful spirit. But that cleansing of the heart is, is the path of repentance. Remember Martin Luther, his 95 theses that he nails to the church door in Wittenberg? He points out that penitence is not some, some one-time act you do, but penitence is the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. And the church has always done poorly when, when, when it said so much that, that repentance is some one-time act, and once you get that done, you can get on with life. And so we got all kinds of people, at least we're used to in America, who, who believe they're going to heaven, even though they live like the devil. Because why? Well, you know, when I was a child, I, I raised my hand. And I, when I was 15 years old, I came to an altar call. When I was 30 years old, I, I came down to the crusade and gave my life to Jesus. Well, you're doing this and this and this and this. What does that have to do with Jesus? Well, I don't know, but I gave my life to Jesus. I, I was converted. I was born again. I was saved. Well, if you're not living life of repentance, you surely were not saved. How does God work repentance? Well, he says something remarkable to Ezekiel in verse 10. He says, Son of man... Verse 10, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. 
that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement. I don't know if you've read these earlier chapters of Ezekiel lately, but if you have, then you probably had the experience that many of us in these days have, that when you read all these details of the temple, all these measurements and all these specifics, you're like, wow, this is almost tedious. What, what's the point? It's not very interesting to us. Well, first of all, you have to realize that to Ezekiel, a priest, this was interesting, and to a people whose entire life was built around the temple. Details of the temple were very important to them. This was their life. And in this temple that God has been describing, there's all kinds of lessons God is teaching his people. There's there's perfect measurements and perfect symmetry in this temple that that God describes. There's, There's revelations of God's perfection, of his holiness. There's there's this emphasis that what God is going to do is not something he made up yesterday or, or, or is building the way I build things. You start putting it together and if it doesn't fit, you cut it and you make adjustments. God has this thing planned out perfectly, the salvation of his people, down to the precise details. He is meticulous. Nothing is left to chance. And now he says to Ezekiel, the way that my people are going to repent of their sin is you're going to describe to them the temple. And they're going to see what I have in store for them. My marvelous grace, the house I'm going to build. And they're going to be reminded of what I had given them, that other temple that they ruined, so that their hearts can break. And they can be ashamed. Remember Jeremiah, the prophet, the Lord said there of his people, that they were not ashamed of their sin. In fact, God says they did not know how to blush. They did not know how to blush. Sometimes girls have light-colored skin and they have blood that flows easily up to their head or however that goes, and they're embarrassed that they blush too much. Or it's too, you, can, you can read it on them too easily. And God says, my people didn't know how to blush. They worship their idols, they betray their covenant Lord, and they have no shame. But Ezekiel, you tell them. You tell them what I have in store for them, and they will blush. You tell them what a gracious God I am, that I will come to dwell with them, and they will be ashamed of what they've done. By nature, our hearts are insensitive to God, and therefore our hearts are insensitive to the wickedness of our sin. And isn't it, isn't it horrible that we can be proud of our sin? I really told him off. Or 1 Corinthians, right? A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. God says that I'm going to bring my people to blush, to be ashamed, to sorrow over their sin. It's not just by proclaiming the law to them, the law to them, that you need to keep these commandments. The way I'm going to lead my people to repentance is proclaiming grace to them. 
Here's the gospel. Despite all you've done to me, this is what I do for you. Well, we've all felt that on a human level, haven't we? Maybe your husbands have been wrongly irritable with our wife, and then she responds so graciously, and then you feel like a double nut dunce, right? How could I, why would I act this way? But the repentance God wants to bring is not this, this worldly regret that Judas knew. Remember, Judas repented in a way, right? Judas was, was sorry. Judas regretted betraying Jesus, but Judas was not truly repentant. He had worldly sorrow that leads to death. But godly sorrow that leads to life is to repent not for my sake, self-centeredly, because I am embarrassed or I wrecked my life. But godly sorrow is God-centered. It's, it's what David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. I've done it to you, Lord, my covenant Lord. And a gracious God to lead us to repentance. By grace, by outstretched arms. And then verse 12 tells us that the whole area on the mountaintop is going to be holy. It's not just the inner sanctuary that the priest can go in, a select class of people, but the whole place is going to be holy. Every worshiper will stand in the holiness of the Lord and enjoy the radiance of his glory. The whole creation will be filled with God's glory. And so God shows himself here in all of his grace. He doesn't just say, you must be holy. But he says to us, you will be holy. You will be holy. I will make you holy. I will give you repentance. I will give you sorrow for your sin. I will give you joy in my salvation. I will cause your heart to come to me. The new heavens and the new earth. It's a creation, paradoxically, is a creation without a temple. Revelation 21, but I saw no temple in it, in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no more need of the sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And then God says there shall be by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The new heavens and new earth where God's glory fills this new creation. Nothing enters that defile. The law of the temple will come to full fulfillment that the whole creation is holy, holy, holy. But now, if we begin to get nervous and say, I don't know. Is my repentance the basis of God coming to dwell with me? I have never repented perfectly. My best repentance is not sorry enough. Well, finally, this morning, let's consider the altar of the temple very briefly. It's the longest section we read. I'm not going to go through the details. I'm going to tell you this. That there's an altar in the temple. And it's the main thing. It's a large altar, 10 to 15 feet tall. It's a giant altar built in three layers, sort of like a pyramid structure. And it dominates the temple. And this altar is for blood. There's a lot of blood. There's a whole week of sacrifice that have to be, that have to be given just to sanctify the altar to be able to be used for worship. 
But after it's all done, God says, and I will accept you. You're going to offer peace offerings. You're going to have fellowship with me, fellowship offerings on the altar, and I will accept you. God is speaking here in those Old Testament terms, right, of blood shedding, because God said in the Bible that, that blood is life. And sinners, we forfeited our life. So our lifeblood is lost unless there is new lifeblood given in our place to redeem our lifeblood. And so all those Old Testament sacrifices were, were saying, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the blood. Jesus gives his life as the complete sacrifice for all our sins. And the writer of Hebrews says, we have an altar from which to eat, that those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Those who are still back at that Jerusalem temple and haven't embraced Jesus Christ, they don't get to have fellowship meals at this altar. The Church of Christ has but one altar. It's the cross of Jesus. Sacrifice was offered. And in the new heavens and new earth, there's no more talk of atonement. There's only talk of the completion. The Lamb who's done it all, who by his blood has redeemed us. We'll never see blood sacrifices again. The day is over. Thanksgiving sacrifices, yes. The fruit of your lips, Hebrews says, yes. Sharing with those in need, yes. Blood sacrifices, no, no. Christ shed his blood once for all. This text is to be a comfort for us. It leads to the very last words of this book of Ezekiel, where this temple city gets renamed. And what is the name? The last words of Ezekiel. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. That's the answer to all the holes in our lives. That's the answer to the great hole in this universe. A new creation. And the Lord is there. How we look forward to that day. Fullness. But no one will have that day if they don't already taste of it now. The Lord Jesus living in us by his spirit, the glory of God in us. The glory of Christ in his congregation, his gospel proclaimed and his people believing in and having fellowship with God. The Lord is here. The Lord is among us. We receive his glory in Jesus Christ. And therefore, in all of our troubles and sorrows in this pilgrimage, we have the great hope. We shall see our God. The Lord will dwell with men. Let's pray together. O gracious and holy God, how thankful we are that in the midst of the holes that we have made, you have come again to fill our lives with your beauty with your fellowship, with your love.
Father, lift our hearts heavenward, we pray, to the coming of our Lord Jesus. And thank you, God, that already now we taste, for we are the first fruits of a new creation, new hearts that know you. Thank you for Jesus who stands among his people. Strengthen us in this hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.